today, what I want to do is kind of set up a launching pad into the Gospel of Luke. Um, and to take a break today to, to speak about something, we're in between two series, speak about something and address something that's, that's really important. It might be a question that some of you have been asking. Uh, you might be asking it right now. I'd like to illustrate that question from a story in my own life. Uh, this was about five years ago, and you can actually turn to Matthew chapter 4. We'll, we'll start reading in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 17. But before I do, kind of the why we're going into this today, by means of this story, about five years ago, uh, my daughter was born. And I remember the day she was born, Brianna and I, in the hospital, we were at Cottage, and for a number of days, uh, there were nurses, like I had seen like half a dozen nurses, just working, just 12-hour shifts, around the clock, doing everything. They were warriors, incredible and I had no idea just how much nurses did until we left, and I had to figure it out on my own. And I remember the point in which this hit me after my first kid was born. It was as we, you know, we packed, packed the kid and new baby seat in the back seat, breeze in the side, you know, on the, on, uh, right next to me, I'm jumping to the car, and we're driving out of that parking garage across from Cottage Hospital, and it's right as we're going through the driveway, and that little thing like opens up and you drive through it. It's right at that moment, I'll remember it clear as day, I hit the brakes, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw this like little fragile human creature in my back seat and something inside me just jumped up into like into my throat and then I realized I am responsible for this human and I have no idea what to do about it and these nurses they were incredible they did everything they watched it they fed it they told me what to do it screamed it cried they told me everything and now I'm driving out and I found myself at like wondering now I wish I wish the nurses like gave me a manual for this. You know, like just a little booklet, like the 10 things that are gonna happen in the next two weeks and here's what you do about them. You know, frequently asked questions. I praise God for things like YouTube, you know, because that's how I learned those first two weeks how to care for a kid. I don't know how my parents figured this out, but apparently they did. I have no problems whatsoever. <laughs> so they did a good job. But I found myself just creeping out of the garage like, I don't, know, I don't even know what to expect. This isn't like a toy or a, you know, a, a mobile phone. This is like a human baby. And I, was, I just slowly began to panic as I drove out of the parking lot, got on the highway. I was so scared. It was like I was turning. Her head was just like this. And I, oh, no. I got on the highway driving 40 miles an hour, which I'm told is a common thing for your first kid. But I'm driving 40 miles an hour. Cars are blowing past me in the fast lane. Like, ah, you're slowing down. And I'm just retorting right back at him. Get out of my lane. You know, stay in your lane. Baby on board get home and trying to figure all of this out. And I just, I remember thinking that. I wish someone just gave me a manual, a booklet. Perhaps you're in here today and you're wondering the same thing about Jesus or about Christianity or about the church or about what in the world you're doing in this building on a Sunday morning. Like, I wish someone could just hand me a manual and just tell me what I'm supposed to do and what I can expect what it means to be a Christian. You might be here today and you, 
you might, you don't know if you're a Christian or not, you're curious, you're exploring, but you're like, this is weird. Like you're coming into a church for the first time, you're like, the lights go off and people are eating bread over in the corner and like they're shouting and hands up and down, we're sitting, like this guy's talking forever, like I don't understand what's happening. Like I wish I had just like a manual, like 10 quick things. You might be a Christian for like 20 years and you're like, I'm stuck. I've been doing this thing for two decades, three decades, and I'm just stuck. I wish someone could just give me a manual, like 2.0, Christianity 2.0 or something. Uh, if you're, maybe you're new to the faith or you're just exploring, and you're like, I wish I had a manual, and you, you say that with an earshot of like an overzealous Christian. They come up to you like, the Bible is your manual. Just read the Bible. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to read it. It's really big. I'll just... I don't even know where to start. Like basic questions. I'm just going to open it wherever it lands. Like, okay, Judges chapter 19. All right, cool. Oh, my goodness. This is crazy. I'm going to put that down. I just wish there was something more simple. This is the size of a phone book, you know? Uh, you know but the Bible is your manual. And you're just looking at these overzealous Christians like, stay in your lane, you know? Baby on board. <laughs> but like me driving out of, garage, uh, out of that garage... It would have been nice if someone just, just told me, like, hey, here's some basic steps. Here's what you do uh, to not ruin your child's life, you know, and to have a, a good next couple weeks. Just some basic navigation. And the truth is, the Bible is, uh, not to cheapen it by calling this, but it can be thought of as a manual. It's God's will for our lives. It's his plan for the ages, for the cosmos. Uh, but it can still be intimidating if you have no idea where to start or what to do. Maybe you don't even know where to open it to or what to do when you get there. And what I want to do today is to start us in a, a passage in Matthew chapter 4 that isn't so much like a manual, but a launching pad for you to step forward in your faith wherever you happen to be, advanced, beginning, curious, you hate it, but you, someone drug you here, wherever you are, uh, I think what we're about to read will serve as a little direction forward into why church, why Christianity, why Jesus? Why are we doing what we're doing today? Uh, and for that, let's just read together in Matthew chapter 4. My text is going to be uh, actually just one verse today. It's going to be verse 19, but just to give us a sense of what's going on, we're going to read verse 17 through 22. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, we have this on the screen for you. You can read along with me. And the gospel writer Matthew says this, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father. And followed him. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, help us to understand your word so that we can know everything about Jesus that we need to know right now, that our hearts might be compelled, that our wills might bend towards you, that our affections might be turned in your direction. 
We pray that you would give us today more than simply a lecture from a podium, but the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see how beautiful and wonderful you truly are. And may you call us to be your disciples as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, wherever you happen to be today, you might be exploring, curious, saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I, you know, what is this Jesus thing? How do I do it? Where do I start? Or maybe it's maybe a little more uh, immediate. Maybe you've been going to this church for a while, and we just got out of 1 Corinthians 13, and you're like, I don't know how to love. Like, how do you, how does one become patient? How does one become kind? How does one rejoice in the truth and not in wrongdoing, and so on and so forth? I think this will answer that for both parties. Maybe you've been going to reality for a while, and you're just asking what's next in the life of our church uh, in the years to come. Uh, We're in a new season as a church that we haven't been in. Uh, We're about six years old. It was six years old that this church was planted. We are a baby church, and with being a baby church comes all these these things, like just, uh, just trying to, just trying to follow Jesus as best as we can on adrenaline rush and the Holy Spirit. Uh, oftentimes things happen by accident and God still blesses it. It's wonderful. But six years later, uh, we're not a church launch anymore. And neither are we quite mature as a church family as well. We're right in the middle. This is exciting to me because it means God wants to move us forward and it requires more intention on all of our parts No more accidents, but purpose and drive. We need fresh vision and direction for the stage of our life. And I want to share all of those things with you today, whether you're exploring or curious, or whether you just want to be, have a a, a deeper part in the life of the church. And fortunately, it's Jesus himself, not Chris Lazo, who has something to say about all of this. Jesus, who thousands of years ago told us what we are supposed to do as a church. Uh, And it's similar to the text that we just read. At the end of Matthew, in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, a famous passage for Christians, as he's leaving, as he's commissioning his original disciples, he tells them what to do and what all disciples are to do uh, in the years to come. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love this. It's three things that he tells the church to do, that he tells us, not just me, not just staff people or pastors, us, each of us individually. I want you to Uh, uh, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. I'm making disciples of you, Jesus seems to be saying to his disciples. Now you go and make disciples of me. The second thing is I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now he's speaking more here about just getting people wet while pronouncing three names. It includes that. But he's talking about making disciples and then immersing them into the life of God immersing them into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, something that is signified by water baptism. But this is, this is huge. Make disciples, bring them into my kind of life, and then teach them to do everything that I said. 
This is what I want the church to do. This is what I want each of you to do. This is what I want you to do together. And then he, he sandwiches it with two of the greatest promises I have ever heard. First one, all authority has been given to me. I have the authority to send you out. The second promise, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so right there, we're told to make disciples, bring them into the life of God, immerse them, literally immerse them into the life of God and teach them to do everything that I've said. And he promises to give us his kingly authority and his comforting presence. This is it. To make disciples and to be disciples. And you say, well, there it is. It's easy. Why are we still talking about it? Let's sing some more, you know, let's end this thing. The reason that we're still talking about discipleship is that even if we are already at this place, we're like, yeah, Jesus calls us to make disciples, there are so many different ideas and understandings, probably even represented in this room, about what a disciple is. If I were to ask you, what, do you, what would you say a Christian is? What were some of the, what would some of the things that would come to your mind? If I were to ask you, what does it mean to be a disciple? What are some of the things that would come to mind? We would probably get a whole spectrum of different things. Some good, I imagine. Some bad, I imagine. Some of the things that people typically uh, sometimes think of when they think of discipleship is mere believism. That this is an informational relationship. So to be a disciple, uh, you might even think this yourself, you know, to be a disciple, I need to uh, know things about God. And this is actually a good thing. We should have information, good information about God. That's why we have the scriptures. But for you, it might be, that might be it. This is, just a, this is just a college test. I just need to have the right beliefs and get the right answers on, you know, the, the midterm in the sky when I get there, and that's it. That's what being a disciple of Jesus is. Some of you might be, uh, might, uh, your relationship or your idea of discipleship might be more in terms of admiration. You really love and admire who Jesus is, but he does not touch or conflict or contradict or interact with anything in your life. He's just out there, but he's awesome. We hear this kind of sentiment in one of the famous lines among uh, my generation uh, that we are spiritual but not religious. We hear it in another one that my friends used to tell me when I was growing up. Uh, it, was, it went along the lines of, uh, I like Jesus, but not the church. And there's actually some, some legitimate concerns that come out of that sentiment. But also underlying that is the sense that I, I love who he is, I just don't want him to mess with my stuff. I love all the good things that he does, I just don't want him to confront me or to conflict uh, with, with my, my lifestyle. Admiration. Or it might be moralism. This is another idea of discipleship, just doing good things. That's all it is, just doing good stuff for people, for the world, for others. Is that discipleship? Uh, you might take that and you might be a, a long-standing Christian. You might take moralism and kind of give it a different coding. Uh, Christian activity. You're just busy. What does discipleship look like? Some of you might, if you were to look at your life, you'd be like, I think it's just being busy for God. You know, I'm in a home group. I do ministry. I'm active you know, on the street all throughout the week. I'm always doing stuff. I have no margin, no rest in my life, but that's okay. I'm a disciple. What is a disciple? Busy. Must be busy. <laughs> but if you're honest with yourself, perhaps you would, or if this is, if this is you, you might also say, no, but I'm also tired and restless. I'm spiritually emaciated. I'm starving. This is not what I expected it to be, but I'm busy. 
That was my life for many years. Some of you, maybe it's uh, supplementing your lifestyle as it already exists with Jesus. So you're like, I already have this thing going on that I'm doing, but Jesus is awesome too. I'm just going to kind of add him over here and just add him into the mix. So long as he doesn't break anything or move anything around, I'm good with Jesus. There's another one, uh, and this might be, this is something that's uh, cropped up just, it's been around for decades, uh, but even more so in our day today. Uh, if, you were to, if you were to ask, what does discipleship look like? You might not say this, but you might think it, it has something to do with political partisanship. Uh, it means, and for people, maybe you're in this room, you're not a Christian, or you don't know if you are, you're new to this, if I were to ask you, what is a Christian, you might immediately think of a political party. Because people have used, over time, the name of Jesus to baptize political ideologies. And for people on the outside looking in, people on the inside looking in, we might be confused, wondering, is following Jesus just like belonging to the right political party? These are some of the things that might come up All of these fail in some way to see the big picture that I think Jesus is speaking about in Matthew. The question we should all be asking right now is what does Jesus say a disciple is? And we can look for ourselves. I want you to go back to Matthew, our text, Matthew chapter four. We read a a big old paragraph there, but I want you to hone in on a single line that's in verse 19 where it says, he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men or women. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men and women. I believe that in his first calling of his first disciples, he gave us just about everything we'll need to know about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a Christian I just want to look at some of these phrases, starting with that first one. He said to them, follow me. Now, to get the gravity of this invitation that Jesus is giving to Peter and to you and myself, you have to kind of step into Jesus' world. Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi, and in those days, if you were a, if you were a Jewish male, especially a younger one, the best, the height of your life The greatest opportunity that you could ever ask for as as a follower of God was to be able to follow a rabbi who lived the scriptures better than you've ever seen. This was your hero growing up. This was somebody who understood the scriptures, whose interpretation of the scriptures was everything that resonated with your heart, and they had integrity. They lived their life in accordance with what they taught and believed, and for you, this was your hero. You desperately, this is all you wanted if you were a Jewish young male in the first century. Your your dream job was to find the best rabbi in the world, according to your standards, and to be able to follow them. And uh, Hebrew boys would, would study their entire lives for this opportunity, and intensely from an early age. Uh, by the time a, a, a boy was 10 years old, they would have been expected to memorize the first five books of our Old Testament scriptures, the, they, they, what they would call the Torah. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but that's about a quarter inch of paper in your Bibles, they would have that memorized by the time they were 10. That was normal, very intense. 
By the time they were uh, perhaps in their mid-20s or early 20s, they would have studied so much. They would have learned so much. And at this point, they would have, uh, they would have started to discern differences between rabbis. Like, oh, this guy has a certain philosophy uh, of the scriptures, a certain interpretation, which was called their yoke. That was how they understood the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and it also referred to how they applied it to uh, life in front of them. That was their yoke. And the dream for this kid, for this, this young boy, was to eventually find a rabbi whose yoke most resonated with them so that they could take that yoke upon them. What does that mean? It means I want to learn from you. I want to copy you. This was not just a single class that happened once a week or a coffee date. This was an entire life relationship. And the dream for this boy was, I want to find this rabbi, the one that I love more than any of them, who is so, in, uh, just so deep in scripture, just so right on the money, that I might endeavor to become like them. And they would approach the rabbi and they would ask him, can I follow you? Now, just because they asked didn't mean they'd, they'd make the cut, because the rabbi was also looking for something. The rabbi was looking for the best of the best. Why? Because the rabbi wanted his yoke to be replicated throughout the world. And so the rabbi was looking for the valedictorians, for the greatest, the people with the greatest understanding of the scriptures, with incredible lives, uh, who are polished in their theology and in their spirituality. So not everyone would make the cut. And so the, 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 the top of the class would get chosen. The rabbi would say, okay, you can. You can follow me. And that, that boy's day would be made. And what would happen? They would leave their families. They would leave their uh, supposed vocation. And they would literally follow their rabbi for the rest of their lives. They would eat with them. They would study with them. They would uh, travel from town to town. They would sleep uh, in the same room together. They would argue in the temple. They would debate the scriptures. They would talk about life together day in and day out. That was a disciple. So when Jesus steps up to these, these guys who are mending their nets and he says, follow me, he's, he's switching it around. They're usually the ones that ask. He's asking. And who's he asking? These aren't valedictorians. They're people who have failed to make the cut. This is Peter. That's why he's fishing. He didn't make the cut. He'll never be a rabbi. He'll never be the disciple of a world-famous rabbi. He's mending his nets, working in the field of his father because he didn't make the cut. And Jesus comes up to him, the a failure. And he says, I choose you. This is where it all starts. Where Jesus steps into the life and to the bubble of people like you and me. For some of us that the world has passed by and said you'll never amount to anything, Jesus steps into your space and he says, I choose you. Those of you that say, I haven't gotten it all figured out, I've got doubts, I'm struggling with my faith, I can't even think about tomorrow, much less a year from now, Jesus steps into your space and he says, I choose you, follow me. Jesus issues an invitation to follow and we respond not by signing up for a one-hour class every week, but by going with Jesus everywhere that he goes, constantly learning from him, imitating him. Why? Because in the eyes of the student, the rabbi is the greatest person in the world, and my, the, the best thing that could happen to me as a student 
is that I might one day become just like him. And so we learn, we imitate him. This is a personally interactive relationship with the rabbi, with Jesus. And so when Jesus offers this invitation to follow me, he's offering us an invitation to know him on an ongoing basis. This is the first mark of discipleship. Uh, Wrap this up in your mind. Write it down if you want. Uh, In reality shorthand, we're going to call this knowing Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means at the very least, knowing Jesus. He invites us. We step into relationship with him. We learn from him. We become familiar with him. We experience him. Where does this happen at reality? Whenever we are experiencing relational exposure to an interaction with Jesus, sometimes in a building, sometimes in our homes, maybe in your car, doesn't matter. Wherever that is happening, you are knowing him. It happens on Sunday gatherings when we open up his word to see what he is saying to us. It happens when we pour out our hearts in worshipful response, when we take of the the bread and of the cup, remembering his death and resurrection. It happens when we're praying together. It also happens when we leave this place, when we open up scriptures like the Gospel of Luke as we're doing together as a church and reading about Jesus. We're learning him. We're knowing him. Discipleship means at the very least you are knowing Jesus. That's not all it means. It also means that you are growing in Jesus. Look at the next line. He says, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you. The first line was our response. The second is his initiative. He asks for a little bit of mustard seed faith. He just asks for a little trusting response. Follow me, just step out. I don't care about your doubts. I don't care about your mess ups. I don't care about your brokenness or about your fears or about your distortions or what you're struggling with. Just step forward. And I will make you all that I designed you to be. You just, you just trust me, man. Lady, you just step into the boat with me and I will do this for you. I will do this with you. I will make you. This is spiritual transformation and growth by the spirit of the living God. Now, knowing, when we're speaking about learning, we're reading the scriptures, that first movement of discipleship, that is a compelling spiritual experience. That's what you get when you're worshiping or you're reading scripture and you just sense God's presence. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. Compelling spiritual experiences when he speaks to you, when he encounters you. This is not that. This is a change in our character, which goes far deeper. Spiritual experiences are important. Spiritual experiences compel you to move, but they do not change you. For change to happen requires slow and sometimes boring cultivation of what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control, and the like. It requires slow cultivation of inner character. We're going to call this ongoing change, growing in Jesus. For the purposes of our church, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means knowing Jesus. It means growing in Jesus. And when does this happen at reality? Well, it it doesn't typically happen in a setting like this. It might. God might do something in your life right now. But typically, it happens in smaller, more intimate groups where we have room to dialogue, and we have room to slow down. We have room to pray, and we have room to wrestle with the things that Jesus said. Things like home groups. It happens in home groups. 
It happens over shared meals when uh, Jesus is being discussed. It happens as we're serving one another, either outside of the church or in the church, uh, on ministry teams or outside, serving the poor, serving our fellow man, uh, uh, serving the community. It happens uh, in our personal life as we're cultivating a devotional life. We're reading the Bible, and not just reading it for information, which is good, but reading it for transformation, Reading it to encounter Jesus and to say, I don't just want to uh, add stuff to my mind. I want to be changed. Show me, Holy Spirit, what you want to do in my life. Being a disciple means knowing Jesus, growing in Jesus, and lastly, showing Jesus. What does he promise to make us? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women. Now listen to this. And he's about to change Peter's life for, his, the entire, for eternity. He's about to change everything about his identity, his vocation, his passion. From the inside out, he's going to change him. How? By making him a disciple. And he's basically telling Peter, I am going to change your life. And then I'm going to make you a person who will change the lives of other people around you. Jesus is on a mission in the world to change things, but he doesn't seem to like to do it apart from his people. He could, but he seems to delight in involving people like you and me. I am on a mission to change the world, to deal with suffering, to deal with injustices, to wipe away every tear, to bring hope and joy and comfort and a purpose in life and redemption and forgiveness of sins, and I am going to do that in part through your life. I will make you a fisher of men. I changed your life, now you're gonna change others. Where does this happen? It happens wherever we join with Jesus on his mission in the world together. This could be as simple as getting to know your next door neighbor with purpose seeing in them the image of God, that they are deeply loved. It happens anytime we are loving our neighbor very well, talking about Jesus with our coworkers, with our friends. It happens globally whenever we are re, uh, seeking to reach the unreached through prayer, through actually physically going, through support. But these are, and this could be unpacked for hours, and we're gonna do it for the next two years through the Gospel of Luke, but in a simple way of putting it, if you want a simple way, what does a disciple mean in the words of Jesus? It means at the very least, we are knowing Jesus, we are growing in Jesus, and we are showing Jesus to other people. Here's what this means for you and me. And I want to start with maybe two different groups of people. For those of you that are just curious, like I'm just exploring the faith, I'm exploring Jesus, what does this mean for you? I think at the very, in a very basic way, it should help you to understand who the real Jesus is. Forget what TV tells you about Jesus or Jesus' faith. Don't get your information about Jesus from politicians. Don't get them from BuzzFeed articles. Don't get them from uh, the internet. Don't get them from Facebook, please. Why would you need to? You have firsthand source material of the God-man himself right here. Get in the text 
and read about his life and let your heart be strangely warmed. He's after you. And I shudder to think at what would happen in some of your lives if not even having a plan, not even knowing what you were going to do or how you are going to move forward in, uh, uh, in, in a spiritual life, you just thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a risk. I'm going to open up the gospel of Luke or Matthew or John or Mark. I'm just going to read about Jesus and try to figure this guy out, see what he's like. I wonder if the Holy Spirit would not bless you out of sheer grace and open up your eyes to see things you could, only ima- you, you could barely imagine. For me, I had grown up for many years knowing things about Jesus. It was information in my head. Some of it was wrong information. And it wasn't until God revealed himself to me in a powerful and compelling way. He just revealed himself to me. It was in a moment. It was actually, I got invited to a church in Carpinteria called Reality. Don't know if you heard of that one. But it was over there. I was reluctantly dragged to this church. This guy preached for like an hour, just so long. He was like seven feet tall too. They sang for hours. I was like, what is this, you know? And I don't know what happened, and I still cannot explain it, but during the second set of worship, something hit me and changed everything. It was as if the spirit of the living God opened my eyes to know that he was there. I didn't know anything about him at that point. And so I just began to, I was curious. I began to open scriptures, reading books, talking to people, just trying to find out about this Jesus. And the more I read about him, the more I discovered about this Jesus, the more my heart was compelled. The more I became convinced this is the greatest human being that has ever walked the earth. He is too good to be true. This is not normal. In fact, he doesn't seem like a normal human being. As I began to read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, I began to see he's not normal. He has flesh and bone. He is fully human, but he's, he's God. And everything within me wanted to follow this guy for the rest of my life. The descriptions that maybe some of us have, just information only or compartmentalization or I'm just adding it to the rest of my stuff or it's a political party or whatever it is, these descriptions sometimes tend to have me, self, as the end goal. I'm following Jesus because of what it does for me. And maybe that's where we start. That's okay. God is so gracious to meet us where we're at. But the deeper you go down that rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland, the more you'll realize that Jesus is calling you to let go of your life. In fact, he said such things in Luke chapter 9, verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. This is counterintuitive, right, to everything the world says, where we're constantly being told and reinforced, you need, to work, you need to protect yourself, preserve yourself, fight for yourself. Even in some of the more emotional and uh, uh, social intelligence circles where we're trying to bless our uh, coworkers and bless other people, there's still this, this concept of doing it so that it will work out for us in the long run. We're paying it forward so that they can pay it back. Jesus flat out says, if you try to hang on to your life in any way, you're actually going to lose it. True freedom comes from giving up and exchanging your life for my life. And even though 
Jesus promises that there will be challenging times for the Christian. There will be hard times, trials, tribulation, difficulties. You'll suffer for following Jesus. The world does not understand this, uh, this journey. Jesus also gives us a glimmer of hope in saying, you might recognize some of this lingo, take my yoke upon you. Hey, just, just come try my yoke, my way of understanding my own scriptures and my way of doing life. Just take it upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and meek of heart. And there, if you take my yoke upon you, my way of doing things, my rabbinical understanding of the scriptures and my perspective on life, you will find rest for your soul. This is Jesus' promise to anyone who would want to follow him. But in order to do that, we have to see through the noise. We have to see through convoluted views of what religion and Christianity and even discipleship are and constantly force ourselves to revisit what Jesus is calling us to do, to be a disciple. We actually have a helpful word in our contemporary language that succinctly captures what Jesus intended when he spoke about discipleship. It's an apprentice. Some of you in this room, you've been an apprentice. And to hear that word, you know exactly now. You have a category for what Jesus is calling you in your spiritual life with him. I was an apprentice. My dad was a plumbing contractor. I was an apprentice to him for six years. And I remember when I first started, I did what I always do. You know, I'm on the strength finders, like personality tests. One of my biggest, like, things is like a learner. I just like information. And it could be useless information. I don't care, like trivia. I just want to know stuff. And when I endeavored to work with my dad, I just kind of fell into that. And I started getting books on plumbing. Like, who does that? And I got these books, and I just started memorizing stuff, like useless facts, trivia. I memorized acronyms for what, like, piping stood for, ABS, you know, acrolontrial, butadine, styrene. That's ABS, you know. I don't know why I was doing it. I was just like, this is probably going to come in handy one day. I don't know how it's going to come in handy, but, uh, you know, PVC pipe, polyvinyl chloride. Like, yeah. And I just understood all of this information. And I just remember one day, my dad left me at a building that was being uh, constructed uh, during testing. What happens when you test a building, uh, especially as the walls have already been going up, you want to test the pipes to make sure that there's no leaks. And so you fill it with water to see if there's any leaks. I didn't know that. So I roll in. My dad's like, simple task for you. Just install this one fixture at the bottom of the floor. I said, I could do that. I cut into the pipe by myself. Three stories of water start shooting out all over the hardwood floor. Owner was not like a happy person in general, so I got scared. And I jam my thumb into the pipe, and I'm laying on the floor in this bathroom by myself, screaming out all the information that I had read in books. Polyvinyl chloride, no, that's not working, oh no, you know, just everything that I had re- re- memorized as, a, as a, an apprentice of my dad, none of it was working. What I actually needed was for my dad to come rescue me, and he did, and he came up, he looked at me, took one look at me, and just started laughing, and left me. Goes outside, turns the water off, which is like 50 feet away, comes in with a bucket, takes in the excess water, and then proceeds to walk me through what I did wrong and what I could do the next time 
and then we went out to lunch, and he laughed at me some more. <laughs> and we did that every day for six years, until I didn't do stuff like that anymore. And I actually grew to love my job. You may have had similar apprenticing relationships like that in your life, or maybe not, but this is what Jesus is calling you into in a relationship with him. Not a Sunday to Sunday, take this test for two hours, get all the right answers, and then go home to your normal life. He's calling you into a personally interactive relationship with him. He's here to make you more like him on his mission to change the world. And if you're a student, if you're one of those, you're like, I have no pedigree, I, have, I was not born in the right family, I am certainly not a valedictorian, valedictorian, but Jesus is calling me. And if you can say in your heart, the best thing that I can think of in this life, or maybe even just a good thing, is to become like this guy. You're in a right relationship. And your next step is to take your next step. I find it interesting that in all of the Bible, the word Christian comes up three times. Disciple shows up 270 times. Make no mistake, and there's nothing wrong with the word Christian. I st- we use it all the time. We still can. But make no mistake what Jesus is calling you into. Not to be merely a Christian who attends a church, but a disciple who is following Jesus, an apprentice. Real quick, here's what this means for our church. This means that there are two ideas that we should be very concerned about going forward. One is spiritual formation. And I use that phrase to preach on it a few times, a phrase to refer to our spiritual growth. I like that word because it entails that we're always forming. We never stop forming. You might be forming good, you might be forming bad, but you are always being formed by something or someone. Jesus calls us to be formed by himself. Spiritual formation, this idea that as a church we are always moving, we are always being formed. There's never a stopping place. You've never achieved, Paul says, until you see Christ face to face. So what are we being formed by? We need to be uh, adamantly concerned with our spiritual growth. The second thing is what I'd like to call people on the fence. I refer to people on the fence to mean anybody who is not growing, okay? This could be, and this certainly, uh, this could be people in the church who have been here for years and they're just stuck. God doesn't want you to be stuck. He's got plans for you. You might be on the fence in your spirituality. It certainly refers to people that are outside of the church. People who are curious, exploring, maybe closed off, but Jesus loves them. We have to recognize this today. As we sit in this building, with the privilege that we have to worship God, that there are 100,000 people around us right now who don't know Jesus, and Jesus cares deeply about them in the city of Santa Barbara. They're on the fence, and Jesus is calling them off the fence. And he does not do that apart from you and me. We should be absolutely concerned with people outside of this church building because Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. If you put it all together, I can wrap up what I believe our church in this stage of our life is supposed to do, what I believe God is calling us to do. It is to help people who are on the fence through a pathway of apprenticeship to Jesus. This is why Reality Santa Barbara is here. 
We are called by God from his very own words to help people who are on the fence into a pathway of apprenticeship to Jesus. Now, you might not be on the fence. You might be like a, an incredible, like advanced Christian. You've got an incredible relationship with God, but you're still going through that pathway of apprenticeship to Jesus. Doesn't change. This is a journey together that Jesus is calling us on. Now, you might say, how are we gonna do that? How do we make and be disciples? Specifically at this local church, this local expression of God's church. It's the way, again, that Jesus told us a disciple is knowing growing and showing if you are able to cultivate those three things well i believe jesus words you are on a pathway of apprenticeship to jesus now there are so many things we could say about those three things there are so many things we are going to say about those three things but if you can just wrap your heart around them from the words of jesus this is what he's calling you to do now we've, as a church, I think we've always desired to be disciples of Jesus. I think we've always had that desire in us for the lost and for spiritual growth. We haven't always had a strategy for it. So you'll see that coming out in the years ahead. Uh, for example, throughout the year, we will define each of these terms even more carefully. We'll de- be devoting our time and resources to these three things in your life, but also in the life of our community. We'll be training and moving you uh, into these three things constantly, just harping on knowing and growing and showing. We'll, for example, be starting by going through the Gospel of Luke, which is called Apprenticing Jesus, so that you can see firsthand from source material, what's it like to follow this guy? I'll be offering classes for those of you that want to launch Uh, in all of those categories, knowing, growing, and showing, starting next week. And you can look in the future for an emphasis on reaching and for a focus on deepening. This is what Jesus is calling us, I believe, to ramp down on, to ramp up on, excuse me. So we'll have some of that space to be active and to explore, but ultimately it's up to the student of the rabbi. It's up to you. I love what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. You just read this this past week. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? I love what Jesus says here because he's not trying to emotionally manipulate you into a relationship with him. He's saying, I'm I'm calling you into the greatest thing you will ever know. I'm gonna change your life from the ground up. But it's gonna be challenging and it's gonna be intense. So don't go into this without thinking it through. Don't think through it forever, but count the cost. Calculate it. Are you ready to take a step of faith and to respond to his invitation in your life to go down that pathway of apprenticeship with Jesus? That's what I wanna leave you with. Alex and the rest of the team come out here. As we transition into worship through singing, we respond and we listen to what he's speaking to our hearts. Allow yourself to think through these questions with Jesus. What do you think of his call to you specifically to apprentice him? Not to just believe some facts about him, not to attend, just to attend church every now and then. What do you think about Jesus' call to you specifically to follow him as an apprentice? 
Secondly, are you moving forward in your journey as an apprentice with Jesus? And if not, ask yourself this honestly. Where are the areas that you're stunted or stuck in the process of knowing him and growing in him and showing him off to the world? Not that you might be made to feel guilty or shamed, but because Jesus wants to get you unstuck. And he wants to show you great and mighty things in the kingdom of God. But it starts with a step of faith, a person looking at him initially, seeing in him something that is more beautiful than anything you have ever seen, and saying, I will follow you. I will take your yoke upon me. I will step in to the pathway you've set for me because I trust you. Lead me to where you want me to go. Heavenly Father, I ask today that as we continue to press into your presence, you would open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing onto us, the blessing to understand and to trust by faith that you are who you say you are, that all of our darkness and confusion, all of our brokenness, all of the things that have rattled us in the last few weeks find their answer in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So God, allow us to do business with you today, to meet you personally. And may you be found there as you promised to be. Lo, you will be with us always to the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen.